Thank you. Uh, thanks, Isaac, for sharing with us. Uh, thank you. Uh, we look forward to uh, yeah, many other testimonies as we hear uh, the good work that God is doing uh, around the world uh, through our church, through our people, through the missionaries, through the work that uh, yeah, the Lord has called us to. Uh, today is uh, the last in our series of Psalms uh, for the summer. Uh, the summer is quickly coming to an end. Next week, we'll welcome uh, a group of sixth graders, as you, uh, if you're new, we are intentional about being intergenerational here at Harvest. And so uh, we have people uh, as young as sixth grade all the way up to uh, no upper limit. So uh, next week, we'll be welcoming some new sixth graders into our midst to uh, be part of what God is doing in our midst here at Harvest. So we will look forward to that. Uh, we're going to do a quick two-week series on uh, Welcome to Harvest as we talk about who we are and um, why we are who we are. Uh, and so today we're going to end uh, this series on Psalms for the Summer um, by looking at uh, one last psalm. But before I do that, uh, I'm going to be right back. One sec. What happened? Uh, what were you doing while you're out there? Maybe you wonder. I have a better question. What were you doing while you were waiting? What were you doing while you were waiting for me to return? I think one thing that we know to be true about life, in our culture especially, is that we don't like to wait. Maybe some people were looking at their watches. I got to be somewhere. I got a date at 12.15, and when's he going to come back? Uh, we don't like waiting. Our culture does everything possible in order to keep us from waiting. So it used to be, you know, if you can get your pictures developed, right? Back in the day, before there were digital cameras, you would take pictures on film. You would take it to a store, 
and they would put them on uh, photo paper, and they would give it back to you. Usually it would take two or three days, but if you could get it back in a day, uh, that would be pretty great. Right? Next day photos. And then it became, well, if you drop them off now, we can get them back to you in an hour. And these days, if you want to have pictures developed, uh, you can pick them online, and then within 12 minutes, you can get them at your local Walgreens or CVS. Our world and our culture is pushing us to lower and lower, lower uh, times. Uh, we have to wait. There's uh, Universal Studios. I don't know if you guys know. They're, putting, uh, they're creating a new water park. And as I was reading about this water park, they're saying one of the things, two of the things that will make this water park different and better from every other water park is that you will not have to lug around these big uh, what are these, these uh, big round things that you sit on? You don't have to carry your raft around. And the other thing, yeah, tubes or whatever they are. The other thing that they said is that they have created a way where you will not have to wait in line to ride these rides. So everybody's wondering. That's a question everyone is wondering. How are they doing that? And they haven't told anybody. But this is what our culture is doing. They're pushing us to wait. And you may have heard this before. But the average American will spend two years of our lives waiting in line. Yeah, that's not like waiting for things to download or waiting for uh, your friend to come. But waiting in line at McDonald's. Waiting in line at Publix. Right? Waiting in line for different things. We spend a lot of our lives Waiting and in a culture that pushes us to wait less and less and less, two things happen. One, our wait times are being considerably cut shorter. But the other thing that happens in the event that we have to wait, because there are certain things where inevitably we will have to wait, in those times we have become worse and worse at waiting. How are you at waiting for things? When you go to the store, You've got, uh, I don't know, you've got 11 items. The lines are super long. You want to sneak into the 10 items or less line. What do you do do in that situation? And when you have to wait in line, someone counts, you're you're standing in the express lane, and they say, you've got too many items, and you go back to the regular line, what is your reaction? Do you huff and puff and get all angry and and try and, and, and push people out of the way? What is your attitude as you wait in line? Here's what I've come to realize as I think about this idea of waiting. Uh, I think it was yesterday, the day before. I remember I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, the passage on love. And it says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. But the first definition of love, the first example of love in the magnum opus of love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. If we can't be patient and we can't wait then step one of the love stare, we have stumbled along to try and make it up, to become great at loving. Can I put on my DL Dr. Love hat, my LD, my love doctor hat? If you're single, you're not yet married, don't pursue or don't let someone pursue you who's not good at waiting, who's not patient, who gets upset at you because you're five minutes late, because you're putting on clothes or whatever it is that's going to make you look more presentable to the other person. If they can't wait, if they're not patient, listen, if you're not good at waiting, you're not going to be good at dating. And if you're not good at dating, you're not going to be good at marriage. You know why? Because if you can't wait, you can't love. And the Bible 
for that reason, is constantly telling us to wait. And so we've heard sermons about waiting before, but because the Bible talks about it so much, we're going to talk about it again today. Psalm 40 is a psalm of waiting. It's a song, psalm of David where he has had to wait upon God. And how we do when we wait goes a long, goes a long way in telling about our character, about what God wants to do, and about whether we'll let him do that in us or not. Psalm 40 is 17 verses. I'm not going to read all of it because I don't want to wait to finish. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because there's so much in this. And honestly, if I were, I mean, I started started preparing a sermon on all of the 17 verses, and I got to verse 5, and I was like, man, this is like two hours long. And so I had to do like vanilla ice and slice like a ninja, cut like a razor blade, and get down to just three verses. Okay, so in three verses, we're just going to read verses 1 through 3, and I think this encapsulates a lot of this teaching and a lot of the experience of David. We're going to highlight uh, some things from it. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word through David. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit Out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is God's word. The uh, inscription, superscription before says for the director of music. So this psalm was meant to be sung in the church. It was meant to be a song that the director of music would read this and he would say, okay, church or people of Israel, people of God, we're going to sing this song. Let's sing it together. I waited patiently for the Lord. This is what they would do. And David wrote it. It's a psalm. So it's an instructive psalm written for the church. Three things that we see in in, in verses one through three. Here's the first thing. The first thing is that God's greatest work often requires us to wait. When Elijah was about one, okay, uh, he told me about a time he was talking with two of his friends. Okay, they were all one year old, and um, one of the kids, they were all boasting about their dads and what their dads do. And so one boy, he said, "My dad, he's so cool. He's an artist. He scribbles something on paper, calls it artwork, and people pay a hundred dollars for it." My dad is the man. This other one-year-old boy stood up, and he said, that's nothing. You think that's something? My dad is what you call a musician. He scribbles something on paper, calls it a song, and it sells for $1,000. Elijah was quiet for a while. Then he stood up, and he said, my dad is the best. My dad scribbles something on a piece of paper, calls it a sermon, And it takes eight people to collect all of the money for it. (laughs) Obviously, okay, this is not true. It only takes four people. (laughs) But there is truth. There's truth in every joke, isn't there? A guy named Jackson Pollock can drip art, right? Drip paint on a canvas, and it's a masterpiece. Why? You go to like museums of modern art and you look at artwork and you're like, dude, like I could do that. 
Like, haven't we all felt that? I felt that way. I still don't understand why, but apparently it's because Jackson Pollock has been doing this for all of his life that it causes something drip, 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 and you pay a million dollars for it because his life work is in it, right? His life work is in it. Somebody, this is true not only of artists and, and singers, but of preachers, right? Tim Keller says, you haven't preached your first sermon until you hit 40. There was a great sermon that was preached by some great pastor. I don't know how, uh, who he was. But somebody, they were just wowed and amazed. And they said to him, how long did it take you to prepare that sermon? And he said, it took me 60 years and 20 hours. It means it took me 20 hours to sit down and write it, but it took 60 years of life for those thoughts and those insights and the truths that came out to be developed in my life. There was a study done by uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, John Boyd, I think, was a research professor's name. And from 1685 until 1900, might have been 1695, but that 200 some year span, he analyzed all of the symphonic master works to come up with the 500 that were most played by orchestras around the world. And he came up with a list of 500 of them written by 76 different composers. And he said, of these 500, 497 of them were written after the 10th year of the composer's career. Meaning it it took 10 years. The other three, two of them were at the nine-year mark and one was at the eight-year mark. He calls it the 10 years, 10 silent years that the artist, the musician, the composer was being prepared in order that this masterpiece could be brought out. In other words, it takes a lot of time for your greater work to be done. Could it be that the same thing is true when it comes to God? Could it be that God's greatest work often requires us to wait. You go to Disney. Some of the best rides at Disney will require you to wait two, three hours and during peak season. And if there ever is a time where the Elsa ride at Epcot is less than an hour long wait, you're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Why? Because you realize intuitively that the best things always require us to wait. And so here's David in verse one. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, heard my cry. Verse two, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. When it says a slimy pit, literally the, the, the all, most commentators that I read said they have in mind, he has in mind a cistern, which is like a, a kind of like a, a place you hold water, almost like a well. And the cistern would have at the bottom of it mud and muck and mire and all kinds of nasty stuff. If you remember in Genesis uh, 37 or so, Joseph... The dreamer is betrayed by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit, right? Thrown into a cistern and left to die. Jeremiah the prophet, same thing happened. He was thrown into a pit, thrown into a cistern and left to die because this was people's punishment of them. A pit is where people go to die. And we have no written instances where David was literally in the bottom of a cistern. 
And so most surmise that he wasn't actually in a pit per se, but he's describing what he is feeling. He feels like he's in a pit. He's left to die. He's been abandoned. It's dark. It's muddy. It's slimy. It's hopeless. It's scary. He calls out to God, but God seems to be far from him. You ever felt like your life was in a pit recently? I know one brother up here is nodding his head, but it doesn't take an outward nod of approval for me to know that many of us are living life in what we think is a pit. Whether we feel like we're there because of our family situation, or we feel like we're there because of a job situation. We feel like we're there because the money is running out or because mom and dad are fighting or because the kids are running out of control, whatever that pit might be. You feel like you're in a slippery place. You try to get your footing, but as soon as you make it, you, you fall back down. David says, I'm in the midst of a pit. And so what does he do? He does what we ought to do, what we have learned to do by reading the Psalms. What do we do when we feel hopeless? He says, I cried out to the Lord. And then the verse two, it says, he heard, turned to me and he heard my cry. So David cries out. He doesn't just cry out in general. He doesn't cry out to anybody who can hear me. He doesn't cry out to nobody in particular. He cries out to God. Where do you go in your pit? When you're, when you're in your pit and you think there's nothing left that can be done, where do you go? What do you do? Who do you call to? You call to the one who, when you call, he will answer you because david is learning that he has to the more we do this y'all the more we do this we're going to be able to not only trust that god hears us but that his deliverance will come in his timing every single time but do we believe that when we're in the bottom of a pit do we call out to god where do we go where do we go when we're in the bottom of the pit this is what David is doing. This is what he's waiting on. When literally it says, I waited patiently, it says, I waited, waited. In Hebrew, as it is in Chinese, when something is repeated, you go to a Chinese restaurant and you see um, there's uh, the, the dish written out in English, right? Uh, I don't know, chicken with broccoli or something like that. And then it has it written in Chinese in the Chinese character. And then it has maybe an English transliteration of that. And you read what it says. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But you look at these symbols sometimes, and they, either, there are some dishes where you look at them, and they have the exact same symbol written twice. Either fortune, fortune, happiness, happiness, luck, luck, whatever it is. And, and there's a dish called double happiness. And what is it saying? It's not just saying, oh, you'll be happy twice over. When anything is written twice like that, back to back, it means this is happiness to the extreme level. And so when David says, I waited, waited, he's saying there is an intensification of the way, not just like I'm waiting, like we're waiting for DL to come back so that he can give us our sermon. He's waiting with great intentionality. It's not a passive waiting. It's the waiting of a servant as he waits upon a master. If um, you're into fine dining or if you're into reading about fine dining, I'm, I'm into, I, I guess I can read about fine dining. I don't eat uh, fine dining very often unless it's at your homes. But there's a restaurant, one of the top three in Orlando, according to the AAA rating. It's a five-star rated restaurant called Victoria and Alberts. Okay, Victoria and Alberts. Um, some of us have heard of it. Some of us have been there. Um, I have dreamed of going there. But 
Victoria and Albert's is a restaurant situated in some place in the Disney property. And the, the allure and the charm of this is that when you go in to eat there, you will be waited on hand and foot, not by a server who is dedicated to an area, but to a Victoria and an Albert who are committed to you and to you alone. They will never say, hold on, I've got another table to run to. Hold on, let me drop off this ketchup somewhere else. They are committed to waiting on you hand and foot. And if you ever go, I would imagine that Victoria and Albert are not chilling in the corner with their feet propped up waiting until you call. Hey, Victoria, come here. Oh, yeah, my bad. Yeah, what is it? And put their shoes on and and walk over to you. They're watching you and they're waiting for you so that if even the faintest glimpse towards their direction, they will jump up and they will say, is there something that I can do for you? There's an active waiting. There's a longing. There's an expectation that they're going to call. And when they call, you are going to be ready. It's just the waiting that David has. It's a sense of actively pursuing and waiting and longing. And in the midst of that, until the deliverance comes, saying, I will be faithful to what I have to do. My, you know, I've used this a lot because it's a biblical example, but I, when I think about this idea, as some of us are waiting for God to answer, waiting for God to deliver, whatever it is that we're waiting for, I think about the apostle John, the apostle that Jesus loved. The only apostle that didn't abandon Jesus when Jesus was at the cross. The only one who actually sat there watching his martyred Messiah, his tortured teacher die and hang on a cross because he didn't want his savior to die alone. John was there. Faithfulness at what cost? And here's what Jesus said to him. Knowing all that was going to happen, knowing what all the other 10 disciples were going to do, Jesus looked at John and said, listen, John, from this point forward, faithfulness in your life is going to look like this. Take care of my mother. Run a nursing home for one person. Run a hospice. While they're changing the world, the other disciples, you change her bedpan and change her bedsheets. You ever think that John thought to himself, you know what? This is not what I envisioned. This is not what I signed up for when I thought that Jesus was going to be the king. This is not John and James' excellent adventure here. What am I doing here taking care of Mother Mary? But Jesus said, listen, while you wait, this is what faithfulness looks like in your life. I think some of us get this idea that, man, I'm just going to college to do what I really want to do. I can't wait to get into the working world. I'm going to make money. I'm going to change the world. I'm just going to school to get grades. I can go to college. I can make lots of money. But in the meantime, I'm just going through and, and cutting corners in order to get my grade. You know what? I'm just doing what I need to do until I get released for God to send me into my destiny. I want to be used by God to do great things, epic things, world-changing things. And until I get there, I'm just kind of biding my time. No, that's not what he's saying. Patiently waiting means you are faithful as ever in your present moment, in your present call until God answers because God's greatest work that's happening is not just in preparing out there, but preparing you to be the person of God that he wants you to be in order that you might be able to receive the answer that God has for you. Oftentimes the greatest work that God wants to do requires us to wait. First thing, second thing that we see 
Okay, second thing that we see, when God answers, we can't be silent. Verse 2, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, put their trust in the Lord. What God is saying, here's what God is saying through David and David's experience. I was in the mire. I called. As I waited in time, God answered, and he took me from the pit to the place of praise. Why? Hey, listen, in all of our lives, God's going to do this. He's going to take us from the mire to the choir so that we can sing a song. And when he does, we can't stay silent. There's a reason God causes us to wait. There's a reason why God calls. Because if indeed his greatest work requires us to wait, then when we get that, we're going to realize how great it is. And then when we do, we can't stay silent. You've waited for three hours to get on that Elsa ride. And then all of a sudden you get out and mom and dad who's watching your sleeping baby says, how was it? You can't stay silent. You don't say, right. If you've experienced something worth waiting for in that way, especially a deliverance, an answer from God. You can't stay silent. Our senior pastor, Inky, says this all the time. It's like, if you're a child of God, you, you got, you're a noisy person. That's what he says. You can't be quiet. We don't live quiet lives. We're loud because we have something to sing about. The people of God were always a people of song. 150 songs of the Psalms, but also 35 times throughout the Bible, you see a song recorded from the lips of the people of God. When they were about to cross the Red Sea, When they crossed the Red Sea, there was a song that was sung. When they were about to enter the promised land and Moses was given the mantle to Joshua, the people of God sang a song. When David slayed Goliath, the women of Israel came back and they were singing a song. Why? Because we've got a song to sing. Because we've got a reason to sing. If God has taken you and delivered you out of the pit of darkness, destruction, where you were meant to die, and he lifted you and put you on the rock of your salvation, then we've got a reason to sing. It doesn't have anything to do with, I'm just a shy person. I can't sing. It's not about that. It's about God putting a song in your heart that you've got to sing. A song's not a song until you sing it. It's like a bell's not a bell unless you ring it. God put a song in our hearts. So that others might see and fear and put their hope in the Lord. And when God does a work in our heart, when he answers us, we can't be silent. Why is it that we are? Because life oftentimes has a way of stealing the song from us. People in our worship team, our praise leaders sometimes say to me, you know what, DL, you always sing the same songs, want to sing the same, same songs over and over and over again. I say, but they're great songs. What's wrong with that? They say, because you have a way of killing songs. You know what killing a song means? It means you sing the same song over and over and over and over and over and over again until it becomes like this great song has been destroyed because of familiarity. So maybe sometimes for some of us, it's become like, I used to love this song, but our, man, our silly pastor keeps singing over and over. And so it's boring to me. Maybe the song has become boring to us. Or maybe the things of life have stolen the song from our lips. 
Sometimes life has a way of doing that, doesn't it? And I don't know if you remember the story of Mrs. Smith. She was an elderly lady, old, old lady, lived by herself, except she lived with one beautiful parakeet, a parakeet named Chippy. <laughs> Chippy would sing. Her songs would make Mrs. Smith so happy. One day, Miss Smith was cleaning up around the home, and she saw that within that beautiful cage of captivity, it was getting a little bit messy and a little bit dirty, and she didn't think that that was fit for somebody of Chippy's stature. And so she decided that she's going to take a little vacuum with a hose and, and vacuum out all of the yucky stuff and the, the poop and, and things in there. And so she turned the, hose, uh, the vacuum on, and she opened the door, and just as she was about to stick the hose in, the phone rang. This was a long time ago before the days of cell phones. So she went over to pick up the phone, and when she did... The vacuum hose, the angle dipped ever so slightly so that it not only sucked up all of the bad stuff, but it sucked up Chippy also. Oh, my goodness. She put the phone down. She unplugged the vacuum cleaner, and she opened up the vacuum bag. And there in the midst of all of the trash and all of the nastiness was a now brown Chippy. She said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And so she did what any bird owner would do. She threw it in the water, doused the water. And so finally, Chippy became clean. But now Mrs. Smith had another problem, and so did Chippy. Chippy was soaking wet and freezing cold. Chippy was now drippy. And so she did. Again, what any smart bird owner would do in a situation like that. She took her blow dryer and she started blow drying Chippy. And so Chippy was obviously scared to death. At the end of that blow drying session, Chippy had regained his multicolored beauty. But something had happened to him along the way. He had been sucked up. And he had been soaked up and he had been blown up. And so he was a little bit different from the chippy that he was before. A few days later, one of Miss Smith's friends came by to see how she was doing and how chippy was doing. And she looked at chippy in that birdcage and she said, how's chippy doing? He just noticed that chippy wasn't the same chippy self that it used to be. Just staring blankly into space. But she asked Mrs. Smith, how is chippy these days. And Mrs. Smith said, well, physically she is fine. He is fine, but he just doesn't want to sing his song anymore. You ever felt like Chippy? You used to have a song to sing, but all of a sudden you got sucked up by life. All of a sudden, you got soaked up, you got blown up, and all of these things have caused you to just stare blankly and cynical surrender to the things of this world. You used to have a song to sing, but you don't have that song anymore. People look at you and they say, are you okay? Things are different with you. Can I tell you something? If it seems like the song has become old or the song has become stolen, what God may do in your life is he may take you to a place where you need to wait in order that a new song could be placed in your mouth. If it seems like your song has been stolen, 
It could be because God is trying to put a new song in your life. Maybe the very act of having your song been stolen means that you're in the pit. And the next thing for you to do is to call out to God in order that he might answer so that he might put a new song in your mouth. Here's the thing. The, re- the way we get a new song is when we have a new encounter and a new experience with God. That's why I have often said we should not be singing someone else's song and we ought not to be singing yesterday's song. Our song must always be a new song of what God is doing in our lives today. The reason why Taylor Swift can constantly put out new songs is because she's having new and new experiences of having dumped by different boyfriends. There's a song for Joe Jonas. There's a song for Jake Gyllenhaal. There's a song for Harry Styles. There's a song for John Mayer. New experiences lead to new songs in our lives. And if the song in your life has become old and has become stale, it could be that God is preparing to do a work in your life that may require you to wait, that may require you to call, that may require when God answers for you to allow that song to be sung in order that you might mean it with a new freshness and a newness when the song has become stale and old in our lives. It's the second thing. The last thing, our song is as much for others as it is for us. Our song is as much for others as it is for us. What happens when David sings this song? He says in verse 3 at the end, he says, as a result, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Are you wanting to see people come to know Jesus through your life and you've been frustrated? Could it be that that's why you're waiting? Could it be that that's why God has delivered you? Could it be that that's why God has answered a prayer in your life? The people of God were a singing people all throughout time. And that song is as much for others as it is for us. He doesn't just say, David doesn't say, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Someone will see and fear. Two people will see and fear. He says many. Could it be then that if you want many to see and fear, that the greatest work of God oftentimes requires us to wait. And when we call and when God answers, he puts a song in our hearts for us to sing. That song is not only for us, for other people. I I don't know. One of the things you may not know about um, Olivia and myself, Olivia is really great at many things, but she is amazing at karaoke. Did you know that? Yeah, she's awesome when it comes to karaoke. So I was talking with her about this, and I, I... uh, sometimes I run these things by her and say, is it okay if I talk about you in this way? And she's like, oh, oh, but you know who's really good at karaoke? And she said a couple of our sisters who are house church shepherds said, Joyce and Haley are really good at, at karaoke. But I said, yeah, but I didn't fall in love with them. I fell in love with you. So I'm going to talk about you. <laughs> Part of what made me fall in love with Olive was just sings Edelweiss on karaoke, Sound of Music. God, it's so melts my heart so beautiful i on the other hand could not be paid a million dollars to sing at karaoke twice in my life unsolicited 
without giving me any money. I sang karaoke, and it was the worst of nightmares because it was actually, I was awake when I was living it. It was so bad. It was terrible. The first song I sang, I remember them because they're deeply scarred in my heart. And I need real prayer and healing for this. The first song was a love song by a group called Chicago called Look Away. When I sang it, everyone looked away. They felt so bad. (laughs) I was sweating. I was like, this is awful. Can we just end? The karaoke machine booed me when it was done. And I ran away and it was awful. So I sought redemption the second time I went come on, just sing one song. I said, you couldn't pay me enough money to do it. They said, come on. I said, okay. (laughs) So I sang a song by young MC called Bust a Move. (laughs) It was so bad. It's like kind of like an old school rap and I couldn't sing fast enough and the words kept changing and so everyone busted a move out of there. It was awful. The worst experience of my life. I could live a thousand lives and never do karaoke and not feel like I have any regrets doing so. It was terrible. However, if you told me, if you sing, I promise you, someone is going to come to know the Lord, then I would sing my song. If they told me that two people would come to know the Lord, I would let it rip. If they said to me, many will come and see and put their trust in the Lord. Then with all of God's grace and strength in me, I would do everything to sing my song so that many would see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. What keeps you from singing your song of God's deliverance in your life? David called, God answered. He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. And then he says, many will see in fear. Put their trust in our Lord. We have a song to sing. And it has nothing to do with people saying, how great are you for singing that song? But we sing so that people would sing of the greatness of God through you, working through a terrible singer who would never do this except for the fact that God promised that if you stood up and told your story, that he would cause people to come to know him and to fear him and to trust him. What keeps you from sharing your story, from singing your song? And that's why whenever people come up here to share a testimony, there's power for people to get it, for people to be changed. Don't underestimate the power of a story of a song. It's as much for others as it is for you. Uh, We have no idea that this simple song that we sing has effects so much more farther reaching we could ever imagine. In fact, David is just writing this hymn. He's writing this psalm and he writes it 17 verses and he gives it to the director of music, says, here, sing this. But what the New Testament writers do in Hebrews chapter 10 is that they lift the words up off of the Psalms and they place them in the lips of Jesus. And they say, this is a Psalm for Jesus. David had no idea that he would write something that would be so inspired and influence so many people 
that it would cause our Savior to recite them. And they say, this is my story. That I was in the midst of a pit. It was gone. It was over. The miry clay. I called. And God didn't answer. Until the third day, Jesus waited, waited, waited. Psalm 40 is a psalm of the resurrection. That I was dead in the pit. No hope, no life, no chance. But in his perfect timing, the God of the ages, the God of the universe came down and he lifted me up and he set my foot upon the rock. No matter how far you fall, people of God, the lowest you can fall as a Christian is on the rock of our salvation. And Spurgeon said, I will kiss the storm that throws me against the rock of the ages. This is our song because it was Jesus' song that he was abandoned in the pit in order that we would never be abandoned. He was left alone to die in order that we would find life and find resurrection. As our uh, brother Isaac was sharing, I think in every, you know, so often we revisit and need to retell uh, these stories. I remember as a young child, the song that even before Tico ever gave his life to the Lord, Josh ever gave his life to the Lord, The song that defined his life was tell the world that Jesus lived. And so he did ever since eighth grade, uh, time after time he went and he told the world that Jesus lived even before he experienced that in his own life. You ever have a, an experience like that where we're singing the songs, but we haven't yet encountered the God behind those songs. Yeah, that's what Josh was doing. But at a certain point in his life, God really got a hold of his life. He struggled a lot with depression and with despair and with hopelessness, feelings of loss, feeling like he didn't matter. I remember on, on, on several occasions we would talk about these things, and he would say, and I have no one to talk about it with for, for, for all of the different reasons. But one year, one day, somehow God met him through a group of people, through a friend who listened to him, incarnated the life of Christ. And after that happened in his life, He began talking about a new song that God put in his life. You make beautiful things out of the dust. And that became the song that he lived to sing. In fact, the day he passed away, that morning as our group of eight were sitting around talking about being our last day, does anyone want to share their story today? He was the one who said, I want to share my story. I want to talk about how God brought me from hopelessness to hope. And unbeknownst to us, there were people that he had been having conversation with over Messenger and over Facebook, counseling people, sharing his story of how he had encountered hope and giving hope to other people. And so he said he was going to share his story. And at the end of that night, when he drowned, he didn't get to share his story. This is a well-known fact for those of us who've been around. And that night, as his brother Joseph and his dad and our senior pastor came to to meet us in, in Ecuador, uh, late in the night, we were just talking, and, and everyone else had gone to bed. And out in the living room of the Casa Sueca, Joseph and I were talking, talking about all kinds of different things. And then at, at one point in a moment of silence, after a moment of silence, about 3.30 in the morning, he said, Pastor D.L., can you tell me what happened? And I told him everything that had happened from morning until evening as best as I could recall. 
And I said, you know, but every point along the way, your brother said, am I still going to share my story? And I told Joseph, I said, you know, I was sad that your brother didn't get to tell his story. And then I made a promise to Joseph and I said, but wherever I go where God allows me, I'll be sure to tell your brother's story. But more than your brother's story, the one to whom he pointed. His willingness to sing the song has allowed many to see and fear and put their trust in our Lord. Two years ago, last week at our debrief, we were talking about this. Two years ago, all of us who went to Ecuador went to a town called Dashino, and we're heartbroken at the spiritual oppression and darkness over that place and their unwillingness to open their hearts and came back. And in the midst of that hotel, in that cafeteria, many of our people were crying because of the depth of the darkness there. Two years later, our group of people, 18, drop by just to say hello. They end up doing a VBS baptizing people and leaving. And as they're leaving after an hour, two hours of ministry, these very people over whom our people wept at their spiritual brokenness were weeping because our group was leaving. Saying, why are you here for such a short time? When will you be back? Will you come back and see us soon? You never know the power of your song. That's not just for us. But others need your song as much as you do, so that many will see and fear. Many will see and fear and put their trust in our Lord. Let's pray. Three verses, guys. There's a lot of stuff to chew on here. First group of people, are you waiting for God to answer? I tell you what, if you're waiting, wait well, because God's greatest work often requires you to wait. God is doing something. He's up to something. He's working in you, working in situations. Wait well. Wait faithfully. Call out to the Lord God. Other group of people, God has done a work in your life, but you've been scared. Came back from Ecuador, came back from DR. I don't know if I want to share. Came back from somewhere. I don't know if I want to share. God showed you things. He put a song in your mouth. Don't be afraid to sing that song out loud. Whatever you're going through, wherever you are right now, can we take a minute to pray? Lord, we need you. God, we need you. Help us. Help us, Lord God. Uh, Let's take a minute right now just to pray to the Lord, asking for his empowering, for his boldness, for his courage, his strength to wait, his strength to call, his courage to sing, his faith to believe. That through us, many will come and see and fear, put their trust in our Lord. Let's pray together for a couple minutes. Again, as you pray for yourself, maybe you want to pray for someone else. You want to pray for the person you came with, your husband, your wife, your daughter, your son, your friend, your teacher, someone going through a challenging time. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Lord Almighty, we're people in need. Let's pray for a couple minutes right now. Let's pray this word into our hearts. Let the roots and the seed of the word of God go deeper in your heart, watering it through prayer so that the sunshine of God would cause there to be lasting fruit. Let's pray. Let's deepen those roots in order that our tree, our fruit would stand firm through the fiercest of attacks against it. Let's deepen our roots as we pray.
as we respond to the word of God. Let's pray together for a couple moments. in heaven I thank you because as I think about this uh, even this past week hearing conversations with having conversations with people who have been waiting for a long long time for something in their lives and I thank you that some of them have gotten an answer through the form of great news some of them have gotten their answer through the form of of a medical report others of us are waiting on things that only you can give to us. This is what waiting does. Reminds us that you alone can satisfy. It teaches us these lessons through the challenge. When everything we've tried has failed and you'd call us to simply wait patiently, be faithful. To try less and to trust more. And through trusting in you, it moves us to obedience. We won't move without you. Lord, teach us and help us. For those of us who've been delivered, who've had answers, who are in a pit and have been restored and rescued, went from the miry place to the rock, from the rock to the choir, teach us to sing our song out loud so that many will see and fear, put their trust in our God. We thank you so much for loving us. The only way that we can love you is in response to the love that you've saturated our hearts with. And so we love you because you've loved us first. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, stand.